And so we are now officially back in our series. We have been for quite some time, our We Believe series. And last week we began talking about what we believe about Jesus from John 18. In case this is your first time here with us, this is a series that really is what you know, a couple hundred years ago we would have called this a catechism. It's essentially the big ideas, the big truths, the big teachings that the scripture gives us about very important things. Today we're talking or continuing to talk about Jesus. These truths that we're talking about are the very truths that make Christianity Christianity. They are the foundation upon which our faith is built. They all come to us through the scripture. And depending on what we're studying, in particular Jesus, we're beginning to look at some of the phrases that Jesus gave us, some of these declarations that he declared to the world about himself to help us understand who he is. And so in the Christian faith, perhaps one of the most common declarations that God's people make, you know, to be a Christian means that you believe in Jesus Christ. And the point of this whole teaching is that these very brief words, oftentimes we utter them without really knowing the significance of what they mean. And frankly, the implication they are meant to have on our lives. So we've talked about belief, we've talked about God, and now we're talking about Jesus. And last week in John 18, it was in that passage that Jesus made a very small statement. And with a super huge implication that changed the fate of humanity. He declared to his ancient audience in front of him and the modern world, us here today, that he is the I am. In the English it says I am he, we'll get to that here in a second, but what he is saying is I am. And so this is a statement that is trying to declare to the world that he is God. And we spent all of last week unpacking that statement. So if you want to get into the meat of that statement, that is online, you can listen to that. We won't get into it in its entirety today because we're going to move past it, or we might say build upon it. So please take the time to listen to that and to process it if you haven't. Because everything we're going to talk about today and do today, especially as we approach the communion table, is built on that reality, on that truth. And so today we're going to talk about a subject that is not necessarily popular. Uh, and I don't say that it's for a sort of shock effect. There are some truths in the scripture that are more challenging than others to embrace. Today I think we're going to address one. But these truths are critically important to understand and to apply in our hearts if we really want to follow Jesus. And what we're going to do is look at the second half of the passage that we began studying last week to do so. John 18, we just read it. So before we do that, I want to paraphrase. We read the text in its entirety, but I want to take a quick minute just to story up here so we don't lose sight of what happened just prior to what I'm about to talk to, uh, talk to you about. In our passage, Jesus is just hours before his crucifixion. He is you know, coming around third base on him going to the cross. And he just spent some serious time praying to God in John 17, and he travels from the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he is there, Judas, who we know is a traitor, he leads a detachment of Roman soldiers and religious officials, sort of high up civic authorities. You've got two very powerful groups of people led by Jesus, excuse me, led by Judas. Judas is not in the Bible, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Nowhere, not even in the Old Testament. He brings these two groups of people to Jesus, and it looks at first like the situation is a bit out of control. This is what we talked about last week. Jesus is with his disciples, things are sort of normal, and then all of a sudden these two groups of people come to take him. From the outside looking in, it looks like the world of Jesus is about to fall apart. But we know because Jesus clearly acts this way, and John tells us this, that Jesus is anything but out of control right now. Everything that is happening in this passage is happening because he and his father had declared that this was the time, this was the hour he would go to the cross. And so his slow journey to the cross begins as he's preparing to die for the sins of the world. And it is in this moment when it appears that he is being accosted by the powers of, of humanity that Jesus confronts his confronters and asks them, who is it they're looking for? And two times they say Jesus, and both times he says, I am he. And what we learn here is that that statement in and of itself knocks them back. 
In other words, there's a strong brush back to them. Some of them even fall on the ground. It's such a power of statement. And this is the very same statement in the original language. Okay, Jesus says, in the Greek it says, I am. In the English we translate, I am he, because I am doesn't really make much sense here. But what's happening here is Jesus is referring to himself in the very same way that God referred to himself when he was speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And so what's happening here, and we're going to talk about this here in a moment in more detail, is Jesus meets power with power. In other words, this group of people come to him, and they think they are powerful. They think they have authority. They think they have the ability to manipulate and control what is in front of them. But Jesus, in a very subtle way, gives them a glimpse, a bit of a reality, if you will, of who he actually is, that he is God. He's more than a great teacher. That's what we talked about last week. He's more than just a good guy. He's more than a nice person or a role model to pattern our lives after. He's all of that for sure, but he is much, much more than that. His self-identification here is very important to us because if this isn't true, if we believe Jesus is not God, then what happens is the very promise he makes us in verse 10 to drink the cup of judgment that rightfully should be poured out upon us, it's utterly false. It makes Jesus not the greatest man in the world. It makes him the greatest fraud in the world. And that is why I say a lot of these we believe statements, you know, sometimes we have, if we've been in the faith for some time, became a Christian in my 20s, and so if you may, maybe were raised in the church from birth, or maybe I've been a Christian almost 20 years now, you start saying these things, they can sort of, they can lose the authority of what they actually mean if we don't really remind our hearts of what this stuff means. So when we say we believe in Jesus, that is a significant statement. Amen. And as Christians, we believe deeply that he is God. We talked about this last week. And so this morning, I want to help us see why believing this ancient truth is so important for our modern lives. Why it guides our steps in a room like this, and without question, when we leave a room like this. These statements are not just meant to be thought about, pondered over, when the church gathers together on a weekend. These truths are meant to shape every, every fiber of our being, bone and sinew, right down to the marrow. These statements are meant to shape our lives. Amen. And this leads me to the only we believe truth that I want to share with you this morning. It is not a popular one, but we will miss the heart of the Christian faith and the grace of Jesus if we don't actually believe it. We believe Jesus died for the sins of the world. We believe that deeply. Amen. And I want to sort of reference two verses for you. John 18, 3 and 6. I just want to pluck out two truths in this whole passage. So Judas came to the garden, guiding an attachment of soldiers and some officials from chief, the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, the soldiers and officials here in this passage, they show us something. There's sort of like a physical example a literal example that is somewhat of a metaphor and a deep reality, meaning I'm not saying it's metaphorical like it didn't happen, but I'm saying the physical thing happening here is a metaphor for something much more significant. And I'm pretty confident that Jesus' words show us this. What he shows us is that these soldiers and officials in this passage, they, they cannot stand before God without Jesus on their side. And if we attempt to do this, it's going to be a big problem for us. Simply put, when Jesus glimpses, gives them a glimpse of him being God, they cannot handle that. Because at this point, these men are the adversary to God. And so in verse 3, John tells us that Israel's religious elite wanted Jesus dead so badly. Here's an interesting historical fact here. The, the religious elite wanted Jesus dead so badly that they formed an alliance with the Roman Empire in this moment. Now, if you know anything about ancient world history, especially at this point in history, you know that right now Rome owns most of the world. And they have occupied the Jewish people's land. They are foreign invaders right now. 
literally seen as foreign invaders. And so it's fair to say that this is, at best, a very peculiar alliance formed with a common goal of eliminating the Jesus problem. The modern-day proverb of this is it's like a really sketchy relationship attempting to do something very sketchy. A modern-day proverb would describe this like this. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what we see here. And we know these soldiers are Roman. The, the text tells us they're a detachment of soldiers. But the way the Greek writes here actually gives us very clear, much clarity in the fact that it's Roman detachment. It's a language used to describe like that form of the army. And so what happens here is they come in and they start trying to grab Jesus. And I want to just point out one important thing here of why it's sort of significant for us to understand what it meant to be a Roman soldier in Jesus' day. These two groups of people stand before Jesus. And one of, the, one of the most powerful groups of people on earth is the Roman army. At the time, Rome is incredibly powerful, and they pretty much own the world. And so to be a soldier of the Roman Empire means this, guaranteed. You are tough, battle-hardened, and you saw lots of combat. Everybody saw combat. Rome was essentially an oligarchy. It existed for war. It started out as a republic, but it didn't end that way. So to be in the army meant you were fighting battles constantly. This is a detachment of soldiers sent to Israel to keep the peace. They are in a combat zone as far as Rome is concerned. And they stand here before Jesus because they are incredibly powerful people. They are brought into the situation to make sure that a situation doesn't occur. And so what this means is these are very, very tough people. And John tells us this detachment of battle-hardened soldiers, along with the most powerful civic authorities in the nation of Israel, are all standing before this guy named Jesus. In other words, the gambit is covered. From the sword to the writing and the enforcement of law, everybody is standing before Jesus. And there's a crazy deep irony in this. You've got some of the strongest and smartest people in the world standing before a guy who has been deemed a criminal and a Jewish peasant, and his name is Jesus. In other words, you have the most esteemed in society at this point and the least esteemed in society standing eyeball to eyeball right now. And so with these two small words, despite the authority that these two groups of people had, with two small words, I am, Jesus knocked these powerful people straight to the ground. Amen. Straight to the ground. Let's bring that next slide up, please. Now, this is an important detail to discuss. And this is because John is trying to communicate something very, very literal to us. This detail really serves as the foundation this whole sermon is built upon. It's a small interaction between Jesus and this band of people that show us something very important. Here's where I say there's a deep implication for our lives. No person, no matter where they are coming from in life, can stand in the presence of the I am, can stand in the presence of God without the person of Jesus on their side. This is something that is called the scandal of grace in the Christian faith. And what this simply means is it doesn't matter if you believe you are the most put together person on earth, that's what's standing before Jesus right now, or when you're looking at Jesus, you think you are not worthy to stand before him because you are the least put together person on earth. The premise is all the same. It doesn't matter where you are coming from. When you try to approach God, you cannot stand in the presence of God. You cannot be in the presence of the I am without the covering of his son, Jesus. And once again, we're beginning to see what happens when the gentle lamb of God begins to assume the posture of the lion of Judah. There is a very slow evolution taking place here. It's sort of like as Jesus' power diminishes on earth, his authority is growing. Because with every step towards the cross, he does something more profound than the prior step. Eventually what will happen is, is his death will bring life to the world and his resurrection will conquer sin and death once and for all. And so this incident is a momentary revelation of the kind of raw power God has. And over and over again in the Bible we see people falling down and coming up apart at the seams when God gives them this glimpse of his power and presence like this. It is the natural response. If you've 
genuinely met God, or he has approached an area of your life, or dealt with an area of your life, or speaks into an area of your life, this is what happens. You are knocked down a little bit, brushed back a little bit. Practically speaking, for many of us, this is how Jesus first broke through the wall of skepticism, hardness, unbelief that surrounded our hearts before we believed his claims. We do believe there are beliefs, truths, affirmations that have to be owned in the heart before somebody can really love Christ. And so none of us start out at this place. None of us start out affirming the reality of Jesus. Through our time on earth, through various ways and the ways that God works, different conversations, different circumstances, at some point we are approached with these truths. And if you actually come in front of a truth before God, what happens is you're going to be brushed back a little bit. Maybe when you first got into the presence of God, when he began speaking to you, maybe it was something like pride that he addressed. Maybe the proud nature of the human heart is what kept you from genuinely seeing and sensing the need for Jesus. His presence knocks you back a little bit. Or maybe you needed the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you believed you were unlovable. Maybe you've come from a history where people have devalued you. And when you stand before Jesus, he brushes that back a little bit. He pushes you to the ground, essentially, and reminds you that you are actually loved. Those are sort of core rocking truths that can change the DNA of our lives if we press into them. You need to be reminded of your value. One of the main ways he brushed me back was, was interesting. Uh, the idea of loyalty is really what sort of captivated my heart first in my 20s. It was this account of him going to the cross. It was astounding. I could not get over the fact that somebody would endure this for somebody. For somebody who really did not earn it or merit it. It was utterly moving to read about that level of love and sacrifice. To see how far one person would go to, to restore another person to God. It was powerful. That level of love and sacrifice was really amazing. That's sort of the first place I got knocked down a little bit. And if you have ever experienced this, if you've ever dwelt in Christ's grace, you know that when you come to that knockdown realization, whatever it may be in your life, there's a second stage to this. It isn't that Jesus just like knocks you down and walks away. He knocks you down but loves you deeply enough to help you get back up. Where his grace comes in is full fold after this, or full bore. He always offers, once we sort of recognize the nature of the knockdown, he always offers to pick us up, renew our hearts, and reinforce our belief. That is genuinely what I believe that God wants to have happen in our lives. He wants to speak into our lives, address our lives, help us to grow in his image, to grow in our belief and followership of him, and then he wants to enforce those things. And by enforce, I simply mean he wants the Holy Spirit to build that up so that it is more significant and more true, whatever it is he's working on in our lives. That is the way it is supposed to happen. We are knocked back, and then in God's grace, he brings us up and remakes an area of our lives that now more deeply reflects his image. Amen. That is how it's supposed to work. But that is not how it always works. In fact, this passage shows us that people have many ways that they can choose to respond to this. In other words, after the knocking down happens, we've got some choices to make. And so here for the soldiers and the religious elite in this story, it's clear, I've already mentioned this, that they speak the language of power. They come to Jesus with the most powerful authorities on earth. And what this means is they are at the top of their game in the realm of the political and on the battlefield. And because of that, it should not surprise us that Jesus responds to them in their own language. He speaks to their issue. Why do you think Jesus refers to himself as the I am? Why does he use the most powerful statement God has ever uttered that declares his authority and majesty and power in the world? Because he's standing before a group of people that think they are the most powerful authorities in the world. And he reminds them that there is someone who holds more power than them, standing right in front of them. And unlike them, here's the clincher here, unlike them, He's about to use this power to benefit the world, not to prosper self. 
And that is the difference between these two types of power. One is essentially scheming. That's what's happened. There's a plotting going on right now to take Jesus to the cross, to basically convict him of something he didn't do. And then you have Jesus who has the authority to do anything. And what he says is, I'm going to lay down that power right now, and I'm going to do something pretty amazing. I'm going to redeem the world of their sin. And unfortunately, the battle-hardened soldiers and religious elite, they don't get that message. Because when they get up, Jesus asks them the same question again. He asks them who they're looking for. And it's clear, the implication here is they're still in defiance. They sort of got knocked back and got up and said, we're, we're still looking for you. And so he reminds them that he is the I am. And their actions issue a serious warning for us today. It's something to think about, especially when you look at it in the context of what Jesus says to Peter in verse 10. You know, Peter there, I think Peter deeply loved Jesus. He was a, you know, an imperfect person like we all are. But here, he attempts to defend Jesus. What happens is, is you know, he, basically they're messing with his boy. And Peter draws the sword and actually strikes one of these men, Malchus. And the Bible tells us that his ear is lopped off. Luke tells us, not, not in this gospel, but Luke tells us that at some point in this interaction, Jesus actually healed this guy. In other words, he corrected the wrong here. And we know it's a wrong because Jesus immediately tells Peter to stop interfering. We see Jesus' power being used all over the place. And it is actually benefiting the very men that are trying to hurt him. So Jesus tells Peter, hey, stop interfering here. Here is why believing Jesus is God matters. Peter's missing the point of what's going on, and Jesus tells him that. Jesus doesn't need any defending. He's the I am. The I am does not need anybody to come to their aid here. But Peter, in a noble way, I think, attempts to. And then he goes on to say, the reason I don't need you to come to my aid here is because my time has come. The cup, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, the time has come for me to drink of the cup that the Father has given me. That's why he stops Peter. He says, don't get in the way. I've got this. And what is about to happen has to happen. I'm ready for this. And I've chosen this path. So this raises a natural question. This whole text revolves around this idea of the cup. And if you're like me, you're probably asking what the cup is. Because this is a term that's referred to multiple times in the New Testament. Well, the cup Jesus is talking about is God's judgment on our sin. And so this phrase is a word picture. It's a way of describing what he is about to do on the cross for us. That he's about to absorb God's necessary and righteous judgment on the world to once and for all deal with the curse of sin. And this is why I say this is a harder text to teach through. Because it at first is a little bit uncomfortable to the ear and the human heart. But to be true to the scripture, we have to talk about these things because they're in the scripture. We can't get to the cross unless we identify this. We can't understand the cross unless we affirm this. And we can't sense the grace of the cross unless we understand what Jesus' grace is meant to deal with. And so on a number of occasions, Jesus is talking about satisfying his father's divine justice, which demands that somebody fully pay for this mess that sin had created in the world for the centuries of injustices that people had committed against God, and at times even each other. That's what is about to be dealt with here. Now I want to mention something here, because when we talk about God and Him being a God who also has the authority to judge, which is something that the Bible teaches us, that is, it's fair to say, one of the lesser things that people would prefer to talk about today, even if you look at sort of the, the pop culture antics of Christianity, the, the judgment of God is not something that's talked about very often. We're really sort of on a love kick right now. And that's probably because 60 years ago we were on a judgment kick. Uh, that's a good way to frame American Christianity. You know, for 50-something years we hammered the idea of judgment so much that people forgot about grace. And then the pendulum goes in another direction and we hammer grace so much that we forget why there is such a thing as grace. And I think the benefit of a passage like this is we have to understand both, or we can understand the importance of both. 
You cannot fully understand or deeply appreciate grace unless you understand what it is delivering you from sin. And I don't think that you can actually experience freedom from this stuff unless you really understand the depths upon which Jesus went to to deal with it. And so judgment pronounced on the world by a guy named God, for some people, this is an old-fashioned religious antic. The idea is like, this is ridiculous. It's like mythology. It's riddles and poems, and this is the stupidest thing people have ever heard, for some people anyways. However, the evidence of this reality can be seen everywhere in the world. Before we sort of, you know, disavow God or walk away from him or don't even consider who he is because he has this authority to do this, there are some things that are worth pointing out. There are plenty of people in the world who don't acknowledge God at all, at all, yet they can look at the ills of our world and long for the day this stuff stops, whatever the ill is. The day that that ill is made right, whatever it is. The day when somebody's going to permanently deal with that stuff and rid the world of those things, those multitudes of wrongs that take every place. It's sort of ironic that in most parts of the world, people long for, for something to be right. They long for forms or versions of justice. Yet the God whom you know, we deeply believe all of that stem from, stems from, we can look at him at times and and not want to follow him because of the fact that he claims to be a God who has the objective authority to judge. Romans actually tells us that there are clear evidences of this found in the way every culture of the world has or desires some form of judicial system to deal with injustice. And while some are more advanced than others, for example, in a country like ours, which has one of the most sophisticated justice systems on the planet, it is impossible for earthly justice to fully mend the pain and the problem of sin. Let me give you some examples of this. Let's talk about earthly judgment for a moment. In one sense, we long for it, but then in some senses, it can never satisfy what it is we long for. Earthly judgment still doesn't bring a holistic satisfaction to a wronged party. One of the most obvious ways this can be seen is if you've ever met a parent or a person who's lost a child or a loved one to a drunk driver. You know, it, you never hear this person say, well, I know they've been apprehended and they're off the road and they're going to they, they, they're gonna serve some time for this. They never say, thank you. Everything is better now. It helps, certainly, but it doesn't fully heal the pain of what that did. That loss never goes away. There is always a gaping chasm in that person's heart that needs a deeper level of restoration. It's sort of like it solves a problem, but it doesn't build the bridge between proper and full restoration. How about a very prevalent example right now? This past week, we as a country remembered the unfortunate reality of 9-11. Every one of those folks has pretty much been brought to justice one way or another, but we still lament that day. Why? Because just bringing somebody to earthly judgment cannot heal and mend the human heart in the ways that it longs to be healed and mended. There is a need for a deeper level of love and restoration. And I'll take this a step further. In some parts of the world, there is no one to deal with this stuff at all. And this is perhaps best seen most recently you kept up with the news over the past couple of years and the human massacres that took place in Syria. There's no one to step up in that incident. Those folks are just treated very poorly and a great many of them lose their lives because of power being used in wrong ways. And so while our earthly government should do everything in their power to intervene in matters like this, please don't hear me speaking against that. I just want to say that nothing under heaven can fully heal the pain and hurt caused by stuff like that. If that was the case, we wouldn't have these in memory of us. Whatever the blank is behind that. Because we as people still, like we wish we could reverse it. We wish we could take it away. We wish we could go back. But on this earth, we can't fully do any of those things. 
And so while it is really common and sophisticated and so much chic to talk about, in the Western world anyways, you know, people having a real issue with a God who claims to be the, the right and ju judge of the world, who's going to deal with these matters one day, it's just worth pointing out. It's worth noting. It's worth holding to this belief. It's easier to hold to this belief when you live in a part of the world that for the most part is trying to see justice prevail. I think it's a convenient thing to claim in a world where, where the needle is at least temp attempting to point in that direction. But I suspect if you spoke to the people in the parts of the world where it does not, or to the people to whom it has not, or to the people who still lament some of the things I mentioned a moment ago, you're gonna find a very different perspective. You're gonna find justice with a lowercase j. And this is why I'm telling you, we need the Jesus of John 18. We have to have him. The world needs him. The one who tells Peter at great cost to himself, you must not interfere with what I'm about to do. God's justice demands that someone pay for the problem of sin and fault. And according to Jesus, it's either going to be him or it's going to be us. And this is what I love about the nature of the cross. It's a hard piece of wood with pointed edges at times. But when you can really analyze what it is and what it does and what Jesus does through it, the more you fix the gaze of your heart on it, the softer it becomes. Because I, what I just talked about is a big problem. It's a major issue. And Jesus says, I'm fully aware of that. And I'm fully aware that no human can actually mend this. Therefore, I'm going to mend it for you. Jesus' actions in this passage, they show us he would prefer that you and I let him drink the cup of judgment. It is out there and it had to be drunk. And his statement here, his actions show us that he wanted to step in between us and God and drink it for us. That's why I mean this, the level of love and sacrifice here is astounding. And like most of the great truths in the Bible, the need for Jesus to die for our sins to deal with God's judgment is a little bit of a hard-edged statement. But it is also saturated in the good grace of God. And I would encourage you to never disconnect those two things, lest you cheapen one or the other. We see this in John 18.8. Jesus is sort of literally and metaphorically doing something here. As they attempt to take him, Jesus says, listen, I told you that I'm here. I am, I am, I'm the I am, I'm Jesus, I'm the guy you're looking for, I am God. If you're looking for me, he then goes on to say, then go ahead and let these men go. He's speaking to his comrades. And this happens, John tells us, so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled, that he would not lose one of those that were given to him. And what Jesus says and does here is interesting. It's the leading tremor of a redemptive grace earthquake. It's sort of like a physical example of what he is about to spiritually do for the world. He's got to once and for all put sin in its place. And this statement here is a bit of a foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to do. It's clear that at this point, the officials were about to take them all. In other words, they were about to punish them all. But Jesus does what Jesus does. He says, listen, you can take me, but you have to let them go. He literally, before he sets his followers free on the cross, sets his followers free in the garden. He puts himself in their place. He says to his captors, don't take them, take me. And I'm telling you, this is a profound foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to do on the cross on a much larger scale. And it is rather amazing when you think about this. So we begin to sort of draw to a close and fix our attention to the table. Think about this. It's rather amazing when you think about this that we just talked a ton about God needing, demanding justice. And he comes looking for it. There's no question about that. But when he sees what's going on, when he looks at the need for justice in the world, what he does is he gives himself up for us so that we could be set free. Before time was even time as we know it, God knew this day would come. And God knew he would have to look for justice. And God knew that he was not going to put that burden on us because we couldn't even do it if we wanted to. The Lord. And there is why we believe in Jesus. 
There is why we believe in God. And we believe that God is Jesus. Because if he's not, this is just a riddle. This is a form of poetry that sounds good on a Sunday, but has no real world application when you walk out of this place in 20 minutes. And so you see, when you choose to believe in Jesus for who he says he is, and see him as your I am, unlike these Roman soldiers, you'll be able to stand tall before the righteous voice of God on the last day. They cannot stand in his presence because Jesus is not on their side. And that is not Jesus' fault. When Jesus is on your side, you'll have a renewed strength and a freedom to stand strong in your life. Like right now, because you'll have the peace of knowing you are firmly rooted in the grace of Jesus Christ. And what's beautiful about this is this is freeing in a number of ways. When you know you are fully approved in Christ, you don't have to look to others for approval on this earth. That's not to say we shouldn't value that. We shouldn't have strong counsel and people who care for us. We should, I'm not saying don't consult wisdom. The Proverbs speak heavily against that. I'm just saying our ultimate approval, even if we live in a world where we get none, we don't have to focus on that because Christ's death on the cross says we are perfectly approved of in Jesus. It was finished through him. You'll even be able to stand strong as you endure the trials of this life because God promises you his strength to get through them and his grace when you err in them. At every moment throughout their journey, Jesus' journey to the cross, his disciples, they, they cower a little more deeply. In other words, the trial comes, but Jesus' presence does not relent. It changes a little bit, but it never goes away. It can't, he can't go away. I mean, just look at Peter in this passage, if you need evidence of this, who after years of following Jesus still doesn't fully understand the kind of kingdom God came to set up. Jesus is coming to free the world from their sin. And Peter pulls out his sword and hacks the ear off of a guy standing in front of him. And then, after seeing all of this, and the healing that we read about in Luke, and Jesus going to the cross, while Jesus is literally dying for him on the cross, Peter denies him three times. He was right in front of Jesus the whole time. And he, he couldn't put it, pull it together. And my point here is to say is that's actually okay. Because Jesus still loves him, still dies for him, and still forgives him. If ever there are evidences of grace, Man, this whole passage is replete with it and what happens following. And so as we close, please know that when, when you believe Jesus died for your sins on this day and on the last day, unlike the power of the parties in this passage, that's a feeble power. What John's trying to tell us is that our, our power is fragile. It is fleeting. It does not a flee. It does not actually have the authority to do what Jesus does here. You cannot stand tall before God in the way that God wants you to stand tall without Jesus. Because those things are rooted in our own efforts rather than recognizing Jesus stands for us in the last day and on this day. Don't just think about this from the angle of heaven. Think about this from the reality of Jesus stands for you right now. And so as we make our way to the communion table this morning, I want to encourage you to meditate on this truth. There is nothing, please hear me, there is nothing that can keep you from experiencing God's love in your life through Jesus unless you do what the soldiers and the civic authorities did. You get up and you keep fighting. You get up and you keep defying. That love stands before you. The question is, will you receive it or reject it? And the, the table here should show us concretely that Jesus' hope is we receive it. And so take this time as we answer the question that Jesus poses to us today. What will you do with this claim to be God? What will you do with this claim to be your God? Make this the day that you trust and follow him because he gave his life so that you could do that. He put his, his body broken and his blood spilled in our place so we could believe, not just here, but believe that he is the I am and have an eternal relationship with him.